Buddha said, for the purification of the mind, for overcoming sorrow and distress, for the end of pain and sadness, for realizing the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. That's a pretty bold statement, really, if you think that the Buddha is saying, if you're mindful, you can overcome all forms of distress and pain and suffering. And yet, from your practice of mindfulness today, you might think it's just the opposite. <laughs> I mean, uh, because we do see uh, some, some degree of, of suffering and, and distressing uh, experience. But if we're willing to consider that what the Buddha said might be true, and we're willing to uh, investigate, to discover for ourselves, then we actually have to try it to see. We actually have to uh, try to abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, that's what we have been trying to do uh, today. So what I want to do this evening is speak a bit about this uh, awareness or mindfulness, which in one, from one perspective seems so simple, and yet it's not easy to do. And maybe with a little more understanding about awareness or mindfulness, we'll be able to uh, practice more confidently and maybe more skillfully in the days ahead. I will be using the word mindfulness and awareness synonymously, that they're the same thing. Some teachers make a distinction between mindfulness and awareness, but it's subtle. And for the most part, they can be used synonymously in most instances. What is mindfulness? You've been trying today to, to be mindful. What's your definition of mindfulness? Well, it has something to do with being present or knowing that you're present or being aware of the present moment. And all of those variations have two elements, something being known. In every instance, mindfulness involves something being known. It might be the object, like the breath, being known. Or it might be the clarity of the knowing being known. It could be any of the sensations in the body being known. It could be thoughts being known, or wandering mind being known, or any of the hindrances. Sleepiness, doubt, attachment, aversion, being known. So the Buddha is saying, as long as there's a recognition 
of the knowing of something. That's mindfulness. Of course, we use something like the breath or the posture as a, a primary object, what we call a primary object in developing mindfulness, just to uh, stabilize our attention, just so we can learn what stability of mind is like on a single object, and then gradually open the field of awareness or the field of objects being known to eventually include everything. So awareness or mindfulness is this quality of attention to the present moment that also involves some clear knowing that this, this is the way it is for now. This is the way it is in this moment. It's clear that when we are distracted, when we're forgetful, when we're lost in a train of thought, we're not mindful. Things are happening, time is going by, activity of mind, activity of body is happening, and yet there's no awareness of it. When we come to, you know, we jump on a train of thought, and we don't know where the train's going, and while we're on the train, we don't know we're on the train. And the mind is just thinking thoughts, thought, 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 thought. And at some point, the train stops and we get off. During that whole trip, we, we didn't know we were thinking. We didn't know we were sitting. We didn't know what we were feeling. We didn't know anything. There was no awareness of anything. And yet, when the train stops and we get off, sometimes, in a split second, we can recall everything we just thought. Sometimes you can remember what you were just daydreaming about. At the time you didn't know it, but afterwards you did. So there's clearly, the mind is still knowing. The mind is doing its job. It's knowing something all the time. But there was no awareness of it. What we're doing with our practice is trying to become, trying to recognize what the mind is knowing. Because it is, as we've seen already today, it's knowing everything. And yet, we're not yet able to be aware of all that the mind knows. And that's what we're working to develop. It's said that the characteristic of awareness or mindfulness is to not float away. Well, we you know when you're not mindful? It's like the mind just floats away. It just kind of goes down the stream and lost. And when you are mindful, it's like you know, a stick in the mud. You, you're there. And the stream may be flowing by, but you're there. You're stable. There's an awareness of what is flowing by. One of my teachers, Saito Upandita, uh, an elder monk in Burma, says that Mindfulness allows us to taste the moment's experience. And he goes on to say that life without mindfulness 
is like food without salt. It's there, there's a texture, but it's kind of insipid and bland. And all it takes is salt to really reveal the flavor. Mindfulness is like that. Without mindfulness, life goes by. There's, there's some kind of some kind of life that's known. But with awareness or mindfulness, it's like everything comes into focus. Everything comes into technicolor. Everything begins to be tasty. We actually taste the flavor of each moment's experience. The mind uh, imbibes it, if you will, and actually feels and tastes the uniqueness of different sensations in the body, different qualities of thoughts and emotions and how they feel. It's said that the function of mindfulness is to remember. To remember. It's not to remember the past so much as to remember the present. To remember that here it is, here you are, this is it. You might notice that when in the morning we have a guided sitting and for the first 10 or 12, 15 minutes, I or another teacher will be guiding you in, you know, direct your attention here, notice this, notice that. When someone narrates to you how to be mindful in an ongoing way, it's not difficult to do. It's easy to do. What is difficult is to remember to do that yourself. One time when I was first started practicing with uh, Saito Upandita, it was a three-month retreat at IMS, uh, and I was, I was kind of a beginner in practice. I'd only been practicing eight years, and it was a three-month retreat. We were reporting to him every day, and I was having a very challenging time. I was making a lot of effort. I was doing the best I could, but it was clear. I wasn't, didn't quite get it. And one time I went for my interview, my check-in with him, and the, the person in front of me was um, kind of a new, a new meditator who ha was having beginner's luck, we'd say. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the door was open to the room where she was giving her report, and she was excitedly telling Saida about remembering her past lives and what was going on and how dramatic it was. And, it was just a, uh, just a dramatic uh, report about her practice. And I was standing in the hall thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so she came out, I went in, and out of my, I, I think just utter frustration, I, I blurted out to Saida, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway, remembering our past lives or something? <laughs> and he looked at me calmly and he said, no remembering this life. It really is about remembering this life. It's not yesterday or previous years. It's this very moment of life remembering to be there, to, to be with it, to be aware of it. The manifestation, or we could say the way that awareness, mindfulness appears, they say is called 
facing the object without distortion. It connects with the present moment and sees it as it is, no spin. <coughs> and when I say no spin, I mean mindfulness doesn't explain anything. It doesn't figure out, it doesn't explain, it doesn't justify, it doesn't even weave it into the narrative. It just sees this is it. No story to it. To the extent that we find ourselves adding a story, explaining, justifying, rationalizing, uh, agreeing, disagreeing, liking, disliking, our effort in being aware has gotten some contamination. And I'll speak more about that. The different flavors of uh, defilement that attach themselves to our intention in practice. But mindfulness itself doesn't explain <coughs> anything. It doesn't figure out, it doesn't put any color, any spin of any color. It just sees this is the way it is. There's a quality of mind that accompanies every moment of, of mindfulness, and it's called ujukata. Ujukata is usually translated something like straightness of mind. It's the inability of the mind to deceive you. Or I could, should say, we can no longer deceive ourselves. When you're mindful, you see, this is the way it is. Whether you like it or not, or want it to be that way, or it's just mindfulness sees this is the way it is. No spin, no explanation, no, no shading the truth, no kind of cutting corners. It's just naked. It's just here it is. It's then up to our next moment to either accept it and acknowledge it, or to resist it with aversion or attach to it with, you know, attachment. But mindfulness itself doesn't do that. Mindfulness just sees this is the way it is. Even though awareness or mindfulness, a moment of awareness or mindfulness, is not so difficult, it is extraordinarily challenging to sustain awareness. The proximate cause for awareness, there are two. And the first is a prior moment of awareness. Well, that's nice to know that if you have one moment, the next moment is more likely to be mindful. But how do you get that first one? <laughs> the second uh, proximate cause for the arising of a moment of awareness or mindfulness is clear perception. Now clear perception, or let me say perception is the capacity to recognize the experience. Mindfulness sees it. Perception recognizes it. Different functions of mind. So when the mind clearly recognizes the quality of this moment, its conditions awareness in the next moment. Okay, if that's so, 
how do we develop clear perception? Because that, if our perception is clear, our mindfulness is more likely to be continuous. Perception, as I said, is the ability of the mind to recognize what is being known. To strengthen our recognition, the capacity to recognize the moment, we suggest or we offer the instruction to name your experience. To just say, in, when you're breathing in. I mean, it's not not that difficult. Say, out, when you're breathing out. To note or to name hardness when you feel hardness or when you feel unpleasantness, note unpleasantness. Or when your mind is thinking, note thinking. It's just naming what your experience is. It seems kind of like kindergarten level of practice or kindergarten technique. But just as in kindergarten, before a child can learn to read, see the dog chase the cat, the child has to learn A, B, C, or C, A, T. Once the child can, can, can spell C, A, T, it can get the idea cat, and so on with all the rest of the words in the sentence. When we read the sentence, see the dog chase the cat, we don't see letters. We don't even see individual words. We just get the meaning. But we're able to get the meaning because we know the letters C-A-T, etc. In mindfulness practice, we have to start just like that, naming the simplest experience, experiences that we have. What is being known? Breathing in, breathing out, hardness, softness, hearing, liking, disliking, pleasant, unpleasant. We're just, just naming the simplest simply naming without any spin, liking, disliking, editorial, editorializing, or anything else. Just this is the way it is. And that naming really clarifies for us that's what's being known. I talked this morning about corralling your attention on the breath. It's like, you know, your high school uh, graduation photo, you know, you look at it, it's, you know, eight and a half by 11, you look at it and there's 150 faces, uh, little white blobs on the, on the, you know, and you don't see any of them very distinctly, unless one of them is circled. If one of them, if you took and circled one of them and you looked at that picture, your eye would immediately go to that person or this face, whose face was circled, and you would recognize it. Well, the same thing happens in our awareness practice. We're sitting, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's sounds in the environment, there's temperature, there's sensations in the body, there's thoughts in the mind, there's emotions, there's our intention, there's our aspiration, there's, there's, just, there's just a, well, 150 things that are going on. And if we don't narrow the range, or if we don't kind of frame the experience, we won't recognize any of it. But if we just say, out of all this, 
I'm going to recognize the breath. Then you can. When it happens, that, that's where the mind goes. Right there, too. To see that. That clear perception supports the continuity of awareness. So the labeling or the naming of our experience, while it seems very simplistic, kind of amateurish, is really a powerful tool for developing strong awareness. There's been some uh, studies done on people naming their experience. And, and Matthew Lieberman's a psychologist at UCLA. And he's done some studies. And he says that you know when you put your feelings into words, when you name the emotions, it takes energy away from the emotional activity of the brain and kind of dampens, I'd say, the emotional reactivity. So they've done brain scans now of meditators, as they're doing with everything now. Meditators, if you want a brain scan, you're a meditator and you want a brain scan, let me know. There's all kinds of people just wanting to scan meditators' brains. (laughs) And what they're finding out is that meditators' brain scans are starkly different than non-meditators. Because when meditators clearly recognize what their experience is, it changes the activity of the, of the brain. Well, we know that. <laughs> so to, to, to name your experience is a useful tool for um, developing continuity. And it is the continuity of awareness that collects the mind, makes the more mind more powerful, more concentrated, and a concentrated mind sees more details. It's like looking at, well, if I, if I hold up my hand like this and say, what do you see? Well, you, you see my hand. And if I say, well, well get a little closer, to, look a little closer, well, then you can see the lines on the hand and some scars where sliced myself. And if I hand you a, micro, uh, a magnifying lens and say, well, look look right here, then you can see some other thing. And if we take a piece of tissue and put it under a microscope and you look at it, you've got a powerfully magnified view of what's going on. You have a lot more detail and knowledge about what it is you're looking at. Well, the same happens with mindfulness as the mind gets more collected, more continuous, and therefore more collected, less dispersed. It sees ordinary experience, like the hand, like the breath, like your thoughts, like your emotions. It sees these ordinary experiences in a lot more detail, with a lot more clarity, and a lot more understanding. And it's from this level of collectedness of mind and depth of perception that insight develops. So it's the continuity of awareness that is the key to unfolding of insight. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that somehow you've got to 
wind down your mind to just the smallest little pixel of phenomena that you can see. That's not how to see detail. The way to see detail is through the continuity of awareness rather than uh, changing the, the kind of the size of the object that you're paying attention to. And the continuity of awareness can be awareness of anything. Awareness of posture, awareness of sounds, awareness of sensations, awareness of the breath, awareness of seeing, hearing. It's how many moments of awareness in a minute or in an hour that determines the collectedness of the mind. One further piece about mindfulness. To see if you're actually practicing or being mindful, if you can answer the question, what, you're being mindful. What is this experience? What is this moment? What, what is being known? Someone asked a question earlier, or somewhere we had an interchange uh, earlier. Our conditioning is to ask the question, why? Why am I experiencing this? And it's very good for problem solving. Asking the question, why? Figuring out, analyzing, uh, solving problems. We ask the question, why is it this way? Why does it have to be that way? Why did this happen this way? But this isn't the path of insight. The path of insight is to ask the question, what? And to really understand the what that's being known. So, what is it that we know? With awareness. Because it is the meditation, of course, is the work of the mind. And it is the work of awareness just to know. But awareness alone is not enough. We need some understanding. And it is the task of understanding or wisdom to be able to see whether what is being known is skillful or unskillful. That's wisdom. So when we pay attention to our experience, awareness is essential, what is being known, but how we understand it is also important. So when I say what is being known, in answering some of the questions today, I talked about observing the body, observing the mind, observing our experience, and recognizing that by paying attention to it, we are learning the nature of the body, or the nature of an emotion, or the nature of thinking. Because we're, we're touching the experience in such a way with such a, a, the, the 
non-spin awareness as to feel what this really is. What is this experience really? It's not whether we think about it, it's not whether we like it or not, it's what is the nature of this emotion? What is the nature of pain? Or, or you might ask yourself, what is the nature of sleepiness? We all have sleepiness today at some point. We have sleepiness every day. But what do we actually know of the nature of sleepiness? Where do we feel it? How does it come on? How are we notified that we're sleepy? How long does it last? What does it do to your kinds of thoughts? What does it do to your faith in practice? What, you know, these are, if we really knew the nature of sleepiness, we could answer all those questions. Now, you don't need to figure those questions, you don't need to figure out the answers to them. We just need to pay attention to sleepiness in such a way that if asked, we would know. So too with any of the other sensations in the body or experiences of the mind. We've all experienced some discomfort today. What is the nature of pain? When does, pain, when does intense, unpleasant physical become pain? Sometimes we can be with very strong, unpleasant sensations, not painful. Other times, even the littlest little thing is painful. Why? What is the nature of pain that makes it that way? Well, as we observe, as we just pay attention without comment, without spin, we will begin to understand the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, the nature of natural mental activity, the activity of thinking, the activity of perceiving, the activity of feeling. This is what the mind does. The mind feels pleasant and unpleasant, neutral. The mind perceives, it recognizes this, that, and the other thing. It thinks about the past, the future, here, there. These are natural activities of mind. We want to be careful in our practice not to think that we're supposed to somehow stop them or get rid of them or judge them or figure them out. Because in practice we're just wanting to understand the nature of the mind or the nature of natural mental activity or the nature of the body. So whatever you experience, no matter what, no matter what it is, is okay. You can't have a wrong experience in practice. There's no such thing. You may relate to it unskillfully and that'll cause you suffering. But if you're practicing and paying attention to whatever has arisen, Everything is fair game. There is nothing, as we say, there's nothing outside of the field of awareness. Everything is fair game. So we observe or we know the nature of the body. Pleasant, unpleasant, gross, subtle, novel, familiar, macro, micro. We get a totally different view of the body from direct experience than we do from studying anatomy. You know, there are things that we discover through mindfulness that are in no anatomy book. Pain doesn't show up in anatomy, and yet it's a very direct experience for all of us. So we're not, we're not trying to confirm 
what we've read or studied about the body, about the mind, or what we've heard from somebody else, or what somebody else has even said was their experience. We're looking to our own experience to really understand for ourselves from our own experience, directly empirical uh, experience, what the nature of the body and mind is. We're also observing what I call the soundboard of the mind. The mind has a, a just tremendous range of uh, capacities. It can love and it can hate and everything in between. You know, it can be creative and uh, energetic and joyful, or it can be frustrated and disappointed and depressed and everything in between. It's all fair game for awareness, whatever occurs. And you may notice even today the range of physical and mental emotional experiences is just phenomenal. It's, it's just hard to uh, imagine how we could ever catalog or categorize all of them. But, you know, if you pay attention for the rest of your life, eventually, eventually you get a pretty comprehensive catalog of, of experiences. We also come to know the natural activity of the mind. All the different kinds of thinking. Narrating, rehearsing, planning, explaining, figuring out. There's just, a, again, an infinite uh, number of mental activities that we become aware of. And when I say we become aware, we're not trying to stop this from happening. These happen due to causes and conditions. All of these experiences, whatever you have noticed today, occurs due to causes and conditions, most of which are outside of your immediate control. We could just say, things happen. Things happen. Sometimes we, we know some of the causes and conditions. We eat too much, we're tired, we didn't sleep enough. They have a conditioning effect. But much of what occurs, we don't know all the causes and conditions that, that come together to weave this moment into existence. So this gives us a clue as to how to work with our experience. If most of what we experience arises due to causes and conditions which are not under our immediate control, don't judge yourself no matter what you're experiencing. Whether it's really unpleasant, really difficult, really pleasant, really joyful, don't judge it. It hasn't, in one way, from one perspective, it's not your fault. It's due to conditions outside of your control. We sometimes think that, oh, if I'm experiencing pain in the body, or if I'm having a difficult time getting my mindfulness established, I'm doing something wrong. No, you're not. You're just noticing, oh, this is the way it is right now. But so often we identify with the thoughts. We identify with the, the feelings, the, the unpleasantness. And we take it as a judgment of our efforts, of our intention, of our ability. And it's not. So this is a kind of a, a reason to, to practice to approach practice with a lot of equanimity. Just, just understand that whatever arises, 
this, this is the way it is for now due to causes and conditions outside of my control. Just let it be there. Everything can be dealt with. We may not think so. We may not want to. We may not want to put up with some pain or some disappointment or some frustration or some fear. But mindfulness can deal with everything. We may not be able to, but mindfulness can. So, if this is what mindfulness is, and this is what is being known through awareness, how can we practice skillfully? How best can we practice skillfully? Teacher that I've been practicing with for the last uh, five or six years, Saito Utejaniya, is emphatic in encouraging students to relax. Relax the body, which, you know, if I say relax the body, you know what to do. Okay. We just kind of let go and just kind of settle down, drop in, and relax. And then he says, relax the mind. <laughs> you know, what do you do to relax the mind? We know how to relax the body. Do you know how to relax the mind? Yeah. Relaxing the mind means to let go of any other agenda than just being present. If there's any agenda in your practice, there's some tension, there's some holding in the mind. The mind is holding on to this agenda. I'm going to do. I'm going. I'm going to be doing it this way. And that's holding in the mind. The mind's not relaxed. Awareness happens when the mind is totally relaxed. It happens initially, often in the beginning. It feels like we have to work hard to be mindful, to make mindfulness happen. It seems that way. We have to really work hard at doing that. But the hard work is really stop doing what we've been doing and relax. Relax and pay attention. So to relax, to observe, to accept whatever comes. This is hard because, well, mostly we don't like unpleasant experiences. And we don't want to accept unpleasant experiences. And so we struggle. But is there anyone in the room that didn't have some unpleasant experiences today? Unpleasant body, unpleasant mind, unpleasant judgments. They come. Whether you want them to or not, they come. So this gives us a clue as to how to relate to, to unpleasantness. Open to it willingly, because it's going to come. If you resist it, it's painful. But if you know that unpleasantness will come, and you accept it willingly, you can learn about it. You can learn about the nature of unpleasantness. And you don't have to struggle. You don't have to make it worse by struggling with it, trying to get rid of it, trying to explain it, trying to figure it out, judging yourself for it. When 
an object arises, the breath, sensation, a thought, a sound, and it's being known. Knowing the object is the first mm, phase, I should say, of being mindful of that moment. The second is to notice what your relationship to the object is. Is there liking it? Is there disliking it? Is there frustration by it? Is there curiosity about it? Something has arisen and is being known. What's the nature of the relationship to it? Because in that relationship, there's either suffering or liberation. If there's any kind of attachment, identification, resistance, there's suffering. If there's clear acceptance, acknowledgement, openness, and letting, letting it be, there's no suffering. It's just this is the way it is. But that's hard to do. Mostly our life is uh, picking and choosing what it is we want to experience, what it is we want to open to, and to, to train the mind to be equally open and equally accepting of pleasant as well as unpleasant is a challenge. But that's the direction of our practice. Being willing to experience unpleasantness with awareness is very freeing. So the right attitude in our practice is to relax the body, relax the mind, observe the present moment to understand it. It's helpful to understand that whatever is being known, this is the way it is for now. There's this um, kind of an unexamined assumption in the mind that the way things are in this moment is the way they're going to be forever. Now we know that's not true, but there's a feeling. It's like, it's not even a belief. It's not even a thought. It's just a feeling that when we're excited, about something, we th it feels like we'll always be excited about that. But when we're depressed, it feels like we're always going to be depressed. Or when we have a good sitting, or having you know some some a, a period of a sitting that's that's going well, we think that's the way it's going to be for the rest of the sitting or the rest of the retreat, maybe even the rest of our life. <laughs> Of course, we know that's not true, but the feeling is there. And so, knowing that, we want to be careful about what I call eternalizing. Taking a momentary perception and eternalizing it. It's not eternal, even though the feeling is that it is. And to add the kicker, this is the way it is for now, helps to undermine that unexamined assumption. There are many um, wrong attitudes, wrong approaches to practice, and I want to identify a few of them so that 
when and if you see them in your own practice, uh, you can recognize them and, and let go of them. One attitude, or one habit, I should say, of mind that, that makes practice difficult is to be constantly evaluating how you're doing by the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness of your experience. It, it's unavoidable that when the body and mind are pleasant, we think we're doing well. And when the body or mind is unpleasant, we think we're not doing well. That is not true. In fact, it's almost just the opposite. When things are unpleasant, we, we're, we're pretty on it and we're pretty, <laughs> we may have some aversion, but we're with it. And when things are pleasant, we just start indulging with reckless, rampant attachment and indulgence. <laughs> that is not good practice. So be careful about evaluating your practice based on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. You, you may see yourself doing that. Another uh, attitude of mind that just seeps in is this hidden expectation or anticipation that it's going to be this way or we hope it's going to be that way. It's very difficult to just arouse our interest, our energy, paying attention without any expectation at all of what will be observed and whether, and, and whether it'll be familiar or novel, recognized or not, pleasant or unpleasant, physical, mental, emotional. It's very hard to just be willing to be aware without any expectation of what is going to be known. Later in the retreat, I'll offer uh, some instruction, uh, uh, a guided sitting, where there'll be periods of times where we stop doing everything. Just stop being mindful. Try it. See if you can. You know, you may forget to be mindful, but mindfulness won't forget you. It'll come get you. <laughs> and it takes some trust to, to, to see that that happens, or to even experiment with that, and to see that you can't stay lost. Mindfulness will come save you from the endless train of thought that never stops. Another uh, deeply conditioned habit is that we feel, if I am making all of this effort, today we, we started at 6 o'clock in the morning, it's 14 hours later, and we've been pretty on it throughout the day. Why isn't, why isn't it happening any better than it is? <laughs> You know, it's like, hello, uh, you know, bad investment. <laughs> it's kind of like, 
you know, we have this sense of, uh, you know, demanding performance. You know, it's like, I put in the effort, give me the goods. <laughs> it, the Dharma doesn't work that way. And yet, we want to be aware, if there's, this, if there's this attitude in the mind, we want to be aware that we're setting ourselves up for judgment, disappointment, frustration, and that they, that's real suffering in practice when we get caught in, in uh, expecting without knowing it and then being disappointed and frustrated because our expectations that we didn't even know we had weren't met. So be careful about having any expectations about your practice, your experience, or the, 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 what should be the result of your efforts. Another uh, common uh, wrong attitude or uh, unskillful attitude is we have a sense of entitlement, we think. I've been on retreat before. I've done this practice before. I did a retreat last year. I've been practicing two years, three years, five years. I should, I should be entitled to a good sitting. Or it should be easier for me this time. Or I know how to do this. <laughs> I wish it were so. <laughs> you know, remember, mindfulness is about remembering. And delusion is about forgetting. And there's just a tremendous amount of delusion in the mind. And we just forget to pay attention over and over and over again. And yet, this, this sense of, I should be having a different experience, I'm entitled to a different experience, really can make our, our, our practice really difficult, unpleasant, make ourselves, make ourselves miserable if we don't see that, that there's a sense of entitlement, or there's a sense of expectation, or there's a sense of stri striving. When I first started practicing with Saito Bandita, uh, I had a hard time. I was striving. I was really working hard. Then I went to Burma to practice even more with him. And once Saito understands that you know how to practice, even though you've still got a lot to learn, you know the basics of how to practice, mostly he just encourages you to keep going. But his way of encouraging, as translated by one of the translators that I was using most of the time, was whatever Sayadaw said, this translator translated it as, please try harder. <laughs> I was already trying too hard, unskillfully. I was trying wrongly too hard. And to try harder was to try harder, wronglier, <laughs> or whatever. And it took me a long time. At the, at the monastery where I was practicing, they let you have four hours of sleep a night. And then the other 20 hours is alternate hours of sitting and walking with a couple of quick meals in the early morning and a, a, a report with the teacher in mid-afternoon. And sometimes there was a discourse in the evening. So after I'd gotten into the swing of things and gotten some momentum going, I looked at the schedule and I said, God, well, if an hour is good, an hour and a half must be better. So I started sitting an hour and a half. And then if an hour and a half is good, two has got to be better. So I 
gradually work myself up. I was sitting three, four, four and a half hours. I'd sit down. Only had to do a couple of days, you know. <laughs> you, know you sit down. You get up four hours later. You don't have. So, but of course, to sit that long is very painful. And so I was going to Upandita, and I was reporting to him. And uh, uh, as I was sitting longer, I was just uh, describing these exquisite, uh, unbearable, painful sensations in the body. And uh, he listened to me, you know, and for, for a couple of weeks he listened. Every day I was coming in with just these just horror stories of excruciating pain. One day he said to me, you know why you have so much pain? And I, in all of my excitement, hoping for the secret teaching on pain, <laughs> said, uh, no. He said, you sit too long. <laughs> in my effort, in my ambition, in my striving, I had totally missed the point that it's not about how long you can sit, how much you can endure. It's about how balanced you can be in your practice. Now, we, we, can, we can sit with ex extraordinary pain. We can learn to sit, you know, 10, 20 hours. There's, there's one monastery in Burma. They have people sitting for 24 hours, standing for 24 hours, lying down for 24 hours. And, and that's, that's their goal. And you can do that. You, can, you know, any of you could go do that if you wanted to. But <laughs> that's not the goal. Understanding is the goal. Understanding comes from a balanced mind. Oh, okay. But in our, in our uh, misunderstanding of practice and in our misunderstanding of and wanting some confirmation that we're doing well, we, we, we buy into all kinds of uh, wrong understandings and wrong practices. And so I just wanted to talk about a few of them so that you can see them when, when you get caught, when you're, when you're heading off in the wrong direction in practice, and your mindfulness or, the, or your intention to be mindful is contaminated with attachment or striving, but you can recognize it and let go. Because it just, hopefully, you won't have to suffer as long as I did <laughs> in that. The goal of practice is to understand the nature of the mind and the body, to see deeply into their characteristics, and to loosen our identification with them. So that as we understand the way things are, the way it is in the body, the way it is in the mind, we let go of the delusion the attachment, the identification that causes suffering. And as we practice more skillfully or more effectively, the feeling of or a sense of well-being grows stronger and stronger. It doesn't mean that we don't feel pleasant and unpleasant. It doesn't mean that we have we don't have the challenges, the ordinary challenges in life. We do. But even in the midst of all that, when we see things clearly, it doesn't disturb or shake 
our sense of well-being. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.